Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. We are so excited to announce that Words Matter Media is partnering with Cafe Studios to bring you a new season of the Words Matter podcast. Cafe strives to inform its listeners about the most critical issues of the day. Each week, Katie and I will do our best to bring facts and context to the often fraught political conversations that dominate our national discourse. We'll be speaking with an array of guests, including people who've made a great impact on American politics or who make it their business to understand what's really happening in Washington. For now, you can continue to listen to episodes of Words Matter for free. In the coming weeks, the show will be available exclusively to members of Cafe Insider. And we hope you'll consider joining the Insider community, whose members enjoy a collection of podcasts created for engaged citizens around the world. You can head to cafe.com slash words to get two free weeks of membership. That's cafe.com slash words. You'll get access to all future episodes of Words Matter and other exclusive content, including the Insider podcast co-hosted by Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Ann Milgram, former New Jersey attorney general, along with much more exclusive content. That's cafe.com slash words. And now for this week's episode. Our guest today is a politician and attorney, and since 2013, he has served in the United States Congress as congressman for New York's 8th Congressional District, which covers parts of Brooklyn and Queens. Hakeem Jeffries began his political career in the New York State Assembly, where from 2007 to 2012, he represented the 57th Assembly District. Since 2019, Congressman Jeffries has chaired the House Democratic Caucus. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, welcome to Words Matter. Great to be with you. Congressman, I've known you a long time, but I think the country got to know you during the impeachment trial with some of the really most impassioned speeches on the floor of the Senate that we've seen in quite some time. Mr. Chief Justice, distinguished members of the Senate, President's Council, I mentioned on the floor last week that Alexander Hamilton has played a starring role during this impeachment trial. But Ben Franklin has only made a cameo appearance. But that cameo appearance was an important one. When he made the observation in the aftermath of that convention in 1787, that the framers of the Constitution had created a republic if you can keep it. Why would Dr. Franklin express ambiguity about the future of America during such a triumphant moment. Perhaps it was because the system of government that was created at that convention, checks and balances, separate and co-equal branches of government, the independent judiciary, the free and fair press, 
the preeminence of the rule of law, all of those values, all of those ideas, all of those institutions had never before been put together in one form of government. And for becoming perhaps, and I think surely, the first person to quote Biggie Smalls on the floor of the United States Senate. That's probably correct. The question was asked by Mr. Sekulow as he opened before this distinguished by why, why, why are we here? Let me see if I can just posit an answer to that question. We are here, sir, because President Trump pressured a foreign government to target an American citizen for political and personal gain. We are here, sir, because President Trump solicited foreign interference in the 2020 election and corrupted our democracy. And we are here, sir, to follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the Constitution, and present the truth to the American people. That is why we are here, Mr. Seculo. And if you don't know, now you know. I yield to my distinguished colleague, Chairman Schiff. I was on the inside of an impeachment from the White House and with President Clinton. Can you take us inside the impeachment manager's process for getting ready to both investigate, make the case, and then try the case in the Senate? Well, it was certainly an intense process, and it was an honor to be part of the team that Nancy Pelosi put together as a reflection of the gorgeous mosaic of the House Democratic Caucus. There were, of course, only seven impeachment managers, but I think Speaker Pelosi did the best job that she could to represent the broad diversity, race, region, gender, ideology, as well as life experience that she could. Adam Schiff, of course, was the general. Jerry Nadler was the constitutional scholar. Zoe Lofgren, the oracle. Val Demings, the sheriff. Sylvia Garcia, the judge. Jason Crow, the ranger. And Hakeem Jeffries, I was just the boy from Brooklyn trying to play my position. But together, we understood that we had a responsibility to present the strongest possible case to the Senate and Joe simultaneously to the American people in order to defend our democracy and the principle of free and fair elections. It was intense from the beginning in terms of the preparation in advance of the trial. Certainly during the trial, it was incredibly intense, but we had a wonderful staff. The speaker continued to be supportive. And of course, Adam Schiff as the lead impeachment manager proceeded with such powerful intellect and integrity and insight throughout the process. So looking back with hindsight, would you have done anything differently, broadened the case beyond just Ukraine, anything that could have been done differently? It was appropriate to present the strongest possible and most understandable case to the American people and that was around the Trump-Ukraine scandal. We have a situation where Donald Trump corruptly abused his power by pressuring a foreign government, Ukraine, to target an American citizen, Joe Biden, solely for political and personal gain as part of his scheme to interfere 
in the 2020 presidential election and to withhold $391 million in military funding from an ally in order to bring that about. And that, of course, is the case that we made. We made that case with overwhelming evidence. Many of the senators who chose not to convict Donald Trump and eject him from office nonetheless acknowledged that we made our case, but just decided that they were going to continue to be wholly owned subsidiaries of the Trump presidency. And that is unfortunate. We had your case made by the House managers, and there's no doubt you made your case. The president was guilty. You had overwhelming evidence, as you said. You had Bob Mueller's account, which was a narrower look at some of the Russia stuff and was mischaracterized by the attorney general, but it still was 450 pages of damning evidence. And then the Senate Intel report that even went even further on Russia. How do we make this more important and relevant to Americans, many of whom have just sort of shrugged this off? Well, Donald Trump has engaged in a continuing conspiracy, in my humble opinion, to subvert free and fair elections in the United States of America. It began in 2016 when the Trump campaign welcomed Russian interference in the 2016 election, knowingly encouraged it and helped to facilitate it. Then, of course, Donald Trump directly solicited foreign interference in the 2020 presidential election by engaging in the corrupt abuse of power with respect to the Ukraine scandal. And now it, of course, continues with his effort to try to discourage people from participating in mail-in voting, notwithstanding the fact that Donald Trump has voted by mail, Attorney General Barr has voted by mail, Melania Trump has voted by mail, Vice President Pence has voted by mail, but for some reason, the president doesn't want the American people to be able to do it in the midst of a deadly pandemic. And it appears is even trying to blow up the post office in order to prevent people from being able to exercise their constitutional right to vote. So, Joe, I think it's important to look at the episodes that are part of a continuing thread to erode our free and fair elections, which is part of the fabric of our democracy. In fact, it is the most important aspect of the notion of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So, Congressman, we will certainly get to voter suppression. That's an important item that we want to talk to you about and and get your thoughts on. But delving more into, as you put it, the mosaic that Speaker Nancy Pelosi built through the impeachment proceedings and and her leadership. I want to talk a bit more about the House Speaker. There are some in the Democratic Party and even in the House Democratic Caucus who think the Speaker hasn't pushed hard enough on issues of oversight by not invoking the congressional inherent contempt powers. How do you rate Speaker Pelosi's leadership on, on that score? I think no one would ever accuse Speaker Pelosi reasonably of being less than forceful. She is as tough as it gets and, of course, understands the importance of the Congressional Oversight Authority and has made clear from the very beginning 
as we all have within the caucus, that the House is a separate and co-equal branch of government. We don't work for this president, Donald Trump, or any other president. We work for the American people. We have a constitutional responsibility to serve as a check and balance on an out-of-control executive branch. And Trump and his administration have clearly been out of control. We've litigated cases before the courts all the way up to the Supreme Court in a variety of different ways. We, of course, have issued subpoenas. We launched an impeachment inquiry. We impeached this president, and we prosecuted the case on the Senate floor. I think that what we have is an administration unwilling to adhere to any norms or behave in any manner consistent with the fabric of a country that should be anchored in the rule of law. But I think we have been aggressive, and appropriately so, with respect to our oversight responsibilities, including but not limited to the ultimate form of accountability, which is impeachment. I want to drill down a a little bit more on the inherent contempt power. There are some activists, Democratic activists, who want more of these subpoenas, but If those subpoenas are ignored, they want officials like the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, jailed if they don't comply. As a member of the House Judiciary Committee, do you think that's a good idea? Well, it seems to me that that's not something that we should rule in or rule out. I would want to understand a little bit more about the legal foundations for our ability to utilize the power of inherent contempt. There's been uh, some scholarly debate as to whether it is something that we are actually empowered to do at this moment. There have been others who have suggested it's a lot murkier a question. We know that if we endeavored to go down this road, that the Trump administration would sue to block any effort to detain any member of that administration. And this will ultimately be decided by the Article Three federal courts. And so I think before we go down this road, we want to be certain that legal precedent is on our side so that we can ultimately prevail. You mentioned the courts, and I have wanted to ask you about this in my other hats and other jobs. I follow the courts closely, both the the Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit. And as you well know, last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit made a major ruling that the House of Representatives lawsuit to enforce their subpoena against former White House counsel Don McGahn had to be dismissed. And the court effectively said that the House Judiciary Committee doesn't have a cause of action to bring that suit because no statute gives the chamber authority to do so. And as you mentioned, you have also litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court in your endeavors to investigate the executive branch. Are you disappointed with the courts and what can Congress do to exercise its oversight power given some of those recent rulings to enforce the subpoenas? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. That was a decision that was made by a three-judge panel. It's my expectation that we will appeal that decision to the entire D.C. Circuit Court sitting on banc, as they call it, and that we will ultimately prevail in that appeal of this particular decision. I think the framers of the Constitution were were very clear 
James Madison himself was very clear. When I think in Federalist 51, he suggested that the House and the Senate are to be rivals to the executive branch. His words, not mine. And what did he mean by that? I think they were clear that they didn't want a king. They didn't want a monarch. They didn't want a dictator. They wanted a democracy. That was the whole purpose of separate and co-equal branches of government. And I would argue that the Article I legislative branch was designed to be first amongst equals. That's why we're in Article I, because we are the most direct representatives of the people. Certainly that is the case in the House. And I believe that ultimately the full D.C. Circuit and, if necessary, the Supreme Court will affirm that. Congressman, I want to turn to the conversation that we're having both in Congress, on the streets, in homes about race in America. I don't know if you saw it, but Attorney General Bill Barr sat down with uh, CNN last week and said the following, and I really want to get your reaction to it. No, I don't think there are two justice systems. Let's, you know, I, I think the narrative that uh, there's a, that the police are, uh, you know, epidemic of shooting unarmed black men is simply a false narrative, uh, and also the narrative that that's based on race. The fact of the matter is, it's very rare for an unarmed African American to be shot by a white police officer. He also went on to say, "There's no systemic racism in America." What do you think when you hear that from the Attorney General of the United States? William Barr has zero credibility on this issue and on every other issue with respect to the justice system. And we've seen that play itself out time and time again. Clearly, the American people, in a clear and convincing fashion, understand uh, that we have a challenge with systemic racism here in the United States of America. This is a great country. We have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And racism has been in the soil of America for 401 years, from slavery, one of the worst crimes ever committed against humanity in the history of the world, through Jim Crow to institutional discrimination, mass incarceration, which disproportionately impacts Black and Latino communities. And we incarcerate more people in America than any other country in the world, including per capita China and Russia combined. That's a stain on our democracy, and it has devastated individuals, families, and communities, particularly within the African-American context. And then, of course, we have been dealing with, for a long period of time, police violence, police brutality, and police excessive use of force disproportionately directed at African-Americans, the great John Lewis, uh, who is now in heaven, while he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington in 1963, specifically referenced being tired of being beaten by police officers. That was 57 years ago. And we are still sick and tired of being sick and tired. So when you hear the president talk about the fact that he's the law and order candidate. You're not old enough to remember the Nixon campaign. I am from uh, 1968. And we knew what it meant then. And it was echoing George Wallace and the racist sentiments coming out that produced the Southern strategy for Republicans that they still hold on to. But what do you hear when the president says that? Well, the president is desperate because his leadership 
with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic has been an unmitigated disaster. We've got more than 185,000 Americans dead. Over 100,000 small businesses have permanently closed. More than 6 million Americans have been infected by the coronavirus. Over 50 million Americans at some point during this pandemic have been unemployed. Food lines and hunger is growing across America. We are in the worst situation of any developed country in the world. When you compare us to Canada or Great Britain, France, Germany, South Korea, even China. And so I think the president wants to distract as part of his desperation in terms of being reelected. And so he's peddling a theory that Joe Biden should own the chaos, crisis, and confusion that has been with us since January 20th of 2017, as if he has nothing to do with it, even though he's the one, Donald Trump, sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So, you know, clearly he is running a campaign seemingly based on the Nixon playbook from 68, or I would argue his buddy Rudolph Giuliani's playbook in 1993 when he ran a similar type of campaign to unseat the then African-American mayor, David Dinkins. But the big difference, Joe, is that when Nixon did it, Nixon was not running as the incumbent president. He was running against the incumbent Democratic Party that had been in the White House for eight years, Kennedy into Johnson. When Giuliani did it, he was running as an outsider, as the insurgent running against Mayor David Dinkins, who had been in office the previous four years. For the life of me, I can't figure out why Donald Trump thinks that the American people will conclude he's not responsible for what is happening on his watch when he's fanned the flames of hatred every day that he's been in the Oval Office in one way or the other. I find myself saying for the life of me, I can't believe at least once a day when it comes to Trump. Um, I want to ask you. <laughs> And I don't I don't ask this question lightly because I think words get thrown around in our politics in a way that's careless and destructive. But do you think Donald Trump is a racist and do you think the Republican Party is racist? Well, you know, with respect to Donald Trump, I don't know what's in his head or in his heart other than what we've seen in terms of his public displays. And I've characterized him as a racial arsonist, as the birther in chief and as the Grand Wizard of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I think I'll leave it at that in terms of my word choice. When you look at his life's journey, however, I think the American people can reasonably draw whatever conclusion they want to draw based on the fact that it was the Trump Organization in the 1970s that was sued by the Nixon Justice Department for racial discrimination against Black and Latino housing applicants. It was Donald Trump in the 1980s, who perpetrated and facilitated the the lynch mob targeting the Central Park Five, now the exonerated five, but five black and Latino individuals who were wrongfully accused, wrongfully charged, wrongfully convicted, and wrongfully imprisoned for a crime that they didn't commit. Donald Trump led that lynch mob. For five years, Donald Trump perpetrated the racist lie that Barack Obama was not born in the United States of America and rode that lie into the White House. And then, of course, we know what happened 
with Charlottesville, the manner in which he's characterized Haiti and African countries as S-hole nations, the vitriol that he's directed at African-American women as well as African-American athletes. I believe he called black football players SOBs while at some rally down in the Deep South. I'm trying to be careful in characterizing where he was in Alabama, but we know the history of Alabama. So I think there's a phrase from my days as a lawyer, res ipsa loquitur, the thing (laughs) speaks for itself. Having some terrifying flashbacks to law school after that, uh, that reminder. So, Congressman, let's talk about voter suppression. We talked about it a little at the top. But back in March, we interviewed Stacey Abrams and talked to her about voter suppression. And she's really taken it on as her charge after her experience running for the governor of Georgia, my home state, in 2018. And here's what she recently said on the subject. It's three things. It's can you register and stay on the rolls? Can you cast a ballot and does your ballot get counted? We have to look at the entire network of voter suppression. It's no longer one thing. It's any impediment that disallows an eligible voter to cast their ballot. And if it's under the color of law, if it's done by those responsible for our access, then it is voter suppression and we need to wipe it out. So, Congressman, as a, as a member of the House Judiciary Committee, what can be done and what should be done at the federal level about voter suppression? And in that answer, I think it would be helpful to also talk about the role of not just Article One and what they can do as the first among equals in the Constitution, but Article Three and the role of the courts. We talked about how important and how powerful the courts have been in Congress's fight to investigate and fulfill its Article One role, but also the power and the things that can be done at the federal level with the courts to help deal with the issues of voter suppression as these cases keep going up all through the courts. Well, Donald Trump and the Republican Party have clearly and unfortunately adopted voter suppression as an electoral strategy and as a pathway toward maintaining power. And that's inconsistent with the recent traditions of the Republican Party. I note that when the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act was passed into law, the most seminal piece of civil rights legislation in American history It was done with bipartisan support, Democrats and Republicans. In fact, it was opposed by a lot of so-called Dixiecrats, Democrats in the South, who were working hard to maintain the system of, of Jim Crow. And it was successfully passed, yes, great advocacy from Dr. King and John Lewis and others, great leadership from a Southern president, Democrat Lyndon Baines Johnson, but also in partnership with many Northern and Midwestern Republicans. And then from that moment on, uh, every time the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized under law, it was done by a Republican president, 1970, Richard Nixon, 1975, Gerald Ford, 1982, Ronald Reagan, 2006, George W. Bush. But everything seemed to have changed after Barack Obama was elected in 2008, people can draw their own conclusions as to why that may have been the case. But all of a sudden in 2013, then the Supreme Court strikes a blow against the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and that ushers in a new era of voter suppression. 
Uh, and so the most important thing that Congress can do is to pass the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Act of 2020. We have passed it in the House. It is languishing in Mitch McConnell's legislative graveyard in the Senate, along with hundreds of other bills designed to make life better for the American people. But this one in particular is designed to address the issues raised by the Supreme Court in their 2013 decision so we can deal with the issues of voter suppression and ensure that one person, one vote actually means something in America and that people have the opportunity to exercise their franchise regardless of race or zip code. So the Supreme Court decision that you're talking about, Shelby County v. Holder, is where the Supreme Court essentially gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And we're seeing the results of that decision come through both in the 2018 election and going into 2020, so it seems. So I I just want to push a little bit beyond passing what the House has passed, the, the Voting Rights Act. Do you or or does the Democratic caucus broadly have any thoughts about how to how to deal with the courts. How Any thoughts on the Supreme Court, on possibly packing the courts, on judges? I mean, they're really the linchpin once these things get passed and after they have been. I'm just curious your thoughts on that amidst all the, the conversation about the importance of the courts here. Well, we have to win in November to make sure that there's a Senate Democratic majority and that Joe Biden has the opportunity to choose the replacement for legendary justices like Brooklyn's finest, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, I hope that Justice Ginsburg remains on the court into the next decade. That may or may not be a reality because the road ends at some point for all of us. Now, she has been such a phenomenal justice, but it is likely the case that Whoever serves as president over the next four to eight years, likely the next four, will be the person choosing her replacement. And she cannot be replaced by a Justice Scalia-type figure. That would be a disaster for the Supreme Court and a disaster for the republic. And so I think what's before the American people right now is to make some decisions And the Supreme Court is on the ballot, just like health care is on the ballot. Economic recovery is on the ballot. And I think it is important for all of us who care about the fair and equal administration of justice to make it clear that the American people can make a determination about which way the federal courts will go moving forward on November 3rd. So you mentioned at the top the the Trump administration's efforts with the post office and Republicans, President Trump in particular, have made this distinction between absentee voting, which we've long had in this country with no evidence of fraud or abuse, and mail-in voting. Is there any difference? Is absentee voting and mail-in voting the same? It's absolutely the same. And in fact, we have examples in places like Utah or Colorado or Washington or Oregon, that have mail-in voting that is universally available. And I think many of us believe that the reasonable thing to do in the midst of a deadly pandemic, where there has been such pain, suffering, and death visited upon the American people in an extraordinary way, unlike any other country 
in the world that no American should have to choose between their health, safety, and well-being on the one hand and their constitutional right to vote on the other, which is the premise for making sure that mail-in voting is available to everyone and that people can vote from home. We also want to make sure that people can vote early across the country in every single state and territory, and that people can also vote with poll sites on election day that are sufficient in quantity so that people aren't waiting in line for hours upon end. And we are endeavoring to accomplish that by passage of legislation that includes in substantial part provisions within the HEROES Act to provide approximately $3.6 billion in funding in election security grants. Uh, The president is trying to draw a distinction that is without a difference in terms of mail-in voting and absentee voting. So, Congressman, I think we can stipulate that I know there's no voter fraud. You know there's no voter fraud. And most importantly, Donald Trump knows there's no voter fraud. But he went down to North Carolina last week and then again to Pennsylvania and encouraged people to vote twice, which he knows is illegal. Everyone knows is illegal. If you get the unsolicited ballots, send it in and then go make sure it counted. And if it doesn't tabulate, you vote. You just vote. And then if they tabulated very late, which they shouldn't be doing, they'll see you voted and so it won't count. So send it in early and then go and vote. And if it's not tabulated, you vote and the vote is going to count. What's he up to? What does he hope to accomplish in your in your view by continually talking about voter fraud and continuing trying to tell people to do things like vote twice and that the mail-in ballots are open to fraud and foreign interference. Well, he's just trying to sow chaos and confusion, you know, which he has a master in, and of course he has a PhD in deception. And so I think he's combining the two and wants to undermine the confidence of the American people in our free and fair elections, perhaps because he anticipates losing And if he does, he wants to engage in some kind of sinister misdirection. I I think that's the only logical conclusion that people can draw unless you just think that he's continuing to make a series of innocent mistakes. Yeah, I don't really associate him with innocent uh, mistakes, mistakes uh, maybe. (laughs) So just playing that theory out. He loses the election but creates enough doubt and decides in some way, shape, or form he wants to stay in the Oval Office. What can Congress do then? Well, the House has the ability to certify the election, and so I anticipate that that is the initial step that will be taken. At that point, we will have a declared victor in terms of the Electoral College, and that will either be Donald Trump or Joe Biden, if the House has certified that the Electoral College victor is Joe Biden, uh, then it's my anticipation that as of noon on January 20th, that's it for Donald Trump, and hopefully our long national nightmare is over. Now, 
it is going to require, perhaps, if he refuses to leave, that the good men and women of this country, be they Democrats or Republicans or independents, and certainly those who are working within his administration, particularly within the Pentagon, come to the conclusion that they swear an oath to the Constitution, not to any individual person, and that constitutional processes of both an election as well as certification that has taken place have declared Joe Biden the winner and therefore that their constitutional responsibility is to facilitate the peaceful transition of power, which is, again, part of the heart and soul of our democracy. And I expect uh, particularly that the good men and women of the military will rise to the occasion if necessary, recognizing that they swear an oath to the Constitution, not to any wannabe dictator. Well, I'm certainly heartened, and I'm, I would expect you would be that if somehow this is all still tied up in court, that on January 20th, Nancy Pelosi will become the president. That wouldn't be a terrible outcome for a short period while this got litigated. Congressman, how worried are you about Russia having a significant impact in the campaign and the results? Well, I think we should all be concerned because they clearly are intent on continuing their interference campaign. I think Bob Mueller described it as sweeping and systematic in 2016, and they are endeavoring to make it sweeping and systematic in 2020. And hopefully... The president has learned his lesson or his campaign has learned his lesson and they won't welcome it and cooperate with it this time around. What troubles many of us is that they clearly are endeavoring to dismiss the notion that Russia is trying to interfere in the election. And I think the William Barr interview, Joe, that you referenced earlier in our discussion, he tried to suggest that China was more of a menace in terms of interference in the election than Russia. Bill Barr knows better, but that is part of the deception that is taking place that should trouble us all because Russia hears him saying that. And when the chief law enforcement officer in the United States of America seems to be sweeping Russian interference efforts under the rug, I think that sends a message to them that they should double or triple down on it. Now, I also do believe that there are patriots within the administration as career employees, career intelligence officers, career diplomats. We saw many of them emerge during the House impeachment inquiry and in the context of the Senate impeachment trial people who saw wrongdoing and at great risk to themselves and their careers exposed it. And I believe that they will do the same thing to the extent that they determine that not only is Russia interfering, but there are forces within the administration who, again, are welcoming that interference, cooperating with that interference, or at least doing nothing as part of an effort to facilitate it. So let's talk about 
COVID. And you mentioned at the top the the federal government's response. And I know New York has worked very hard on its response and seems to have figured it out. And, and we'll talk about them in a second. But let's zoom out. We actually had Paul Begala on last week, and, and he kept harping on, keep the main thing the main thing. Nearly 190,000 Americans have died. More than 6 million have been infected. Those are staggering numbers that continue to rise. And the U.S. only has 4% of the world's population, and yet we've recorded more than 25% of the world's COVID cases. What is your assessment of how President Trump and the federal government has handled this public health crisis? Well, the only question is whether he should get a D for disaster or an F for failure. Because at every possible level, in terms of the public health aspect of the crisis or the economic aspect of the crisis, he has failed. We have failed in terms of testing. We have failed in terms of social distancing protocols. We have failed in terms of letting the science guide the treatment. And it's my concern that we may fail as it relates to the dissemination of the vaccine. We certainly have failed as it relates to the availability, particularly early on during the height of the pandemic, of personal protective equipment for our frontline workers and heroes and our other essential workers, such as grocery store clerks and others, uh, who were sacrificing in order to keep the country moving while the overwhelming majority of people were by necessity locked down in their homes. And that is all about leadership. If you think about it, President FDR, in the midst of World War II at the onset, talked about building an arsenal of democracy. And America, on a dime, was able to produce ships and airplanes and tanks to defeat both the empire of Japan and the evil empire of Nazi Germany and set world history on a different course. And the American people of every race, in every region, of every gender, rose to the occasion, but inspired by FDR's leadership and the competence of his administration. And in the midst of this pandemic, we had a hard time producing masks and cotton swabs when we produced an arsenal for democracy 75 plus years ago because we got no leadership from President Trump, who seems disinterested in, in COVID-19 and the pain, suffering, and death it was inflicting upon the American people because it disrupted his narrative that this was the greatest economy in the history uh, of the world, and he had somehow created it. And, and yet, notwithstanding the fact that he said that only he can fix the problems of the American people, when COVID-19 hit, he retreated. The state of New York, after a lot of work and effort and heartbreak, seems to have figured out how to control this. What's the difference? What did New York figure out? Why can't the federal government do it too? Well, New York City uh, and New York State is a resilient place, and we suffered significantly, but we received great decisive leadership 
evidence-based leadership from Andrew Cuomo, our governor. And then the people of New York rose to the occasion. People stayed home when asked to. People largely and overwhelmingly complied with the social distancing recommendations. When people were allowed to come back out, the compliance rate with mask wearing is off the charts in every single community, uh, certainly across the city of New York and I would imagine throughout the state. And the fact that we were able to go from the epicenter of the crisis, given the international nature of our city and our density, and so we were hit hard and attacked aggressively by the coronavirus, we are now at a place where the infection rate is less than 2%. I mean, that is an incredible accomplishment. And of course, we've been surpassed by states like Florida, California, and Texas in terms of COVID-19 cases while we've kept it under control in such an incredible way. And so, you know, I think Dr. King used to say it takes teamwork to make the dream work, and it's been a team effort. Leadership, but also New Yorkers demonstrating that continued resilience, which has always been a thing of pride and a part of our character, not just year after year, but decade after decade and century after century. Congressman, you've been incredibly generous with your time, so I just want to end with two quick questions. Can you react to the story that came out late last week about the president making derogatory comments about our military and how he thought they were suckers and losers? Yeah, I mean, it's such a vicious and nasty statement that really reveals his lack of character because— the military as an institution and those who have sacrificed and paid the ultimate price aren't suckers and losers. They are patriots and heroes. And his inability to recognize that, I think, reflects his own insecurities about the fact, as Tammy Duckworth has frequently and compellingly pointed out, when duty called for him in the context of the Vietnam War, he ran in the other direction. And I think that he's particularly sensitive about it. Now, I don't want to make any psychological assessments here because I'm not qualified to do it. Uh, but if you look at the manner in which he criticized John McCain in such a vicious and nasty fashion, notwithstanding the universal recognition of John McCain's heroic and patriotic status. Again, he appears to have been insecure about who was the true courageous individual as between the two. And this may just be a, a, a manifestation of that, and it'll be one of many stains against this presidency when this is all said and done. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question, and I'm used to helping people figure out how to answer questions and which ones to avoid. So as, as your unofficial advisor, I'm going to advise you to avoid this question. But what's next <laughs> for you? Is that you going to be the first black speaker of the House, mayor of New York, senator from New York? What's next? Well, you know, in the midst of all the turbulence that we're dealing with, I'm just trying to get to tomorrow. Uh, and I think we all are just trying to get to November Third, 
we're in a turbulent moment right now. You know, the way I've kind of characterized the trajectory that we've been on, we were we were at BC, that would be before COVID. And I think we're all just trying to get to AD after Donald. <laughs> and when we get to AD, uh, you know, I think my hope is I look forward to continuing to serve as the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. It's been an honor and a privilege to do so. It's the most diverse legislative caucus in the history of the country. And as a result of our diversity, more African-Americans serving in Congress than ever before, more women, more Latinos, more Asian-Americans, more members of the LGBTQ community, two Native American women. It's just such a wonderful caucus to be a part of and have the chance to chair. And I think we can do great things if there's a triangular alignment of values on January 20th between the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and I look forward to that moment. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy the session. Well, thank you, Joe, and thank you, Katie. Thank you, Congressman. As we mentioned, you can listen to the podcast in this feed for free for the next few weeks, but it will soon be available exclusively for members of Cafe Insider. To join and get two free weeks, head to cafe.com slash words. That's cafe.com slash words. That's it for this week's episode of Words Matter. Your hosts are Joe Lockhart and Katie Barlow, and the executive producer is Adam Levine. Words Matter is produced in association with Cafe Studios. The executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper. Audio production by The Hangar Studios. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.